you know, Andy might be tickled to know that sometimes I wake up with his voice in my head <laughs> singing Psalm 90 when the sun comes up. So I guess that's a good thing. At least you're not saying something else in my head when I wake up. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you, Andy. Okay. Hey, let's pause and pray, shall we? Our Father God, you are great and gracious. And once again, here's an experience of that. Your word is open before your people. Um, but we rely on you for understanding. We rely on you to make this more than just a vain religious exercise. We look to you for life and food in these words. They're your words. So may that be what we hear. That's our simple prayer. That's our simple ask this morning. Only in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Amen. Well, we've reached chapter 3. Second Thessalonians is a little shorter letter. It's quickly following First Thessalonians. So he's just following up on some things that uh, he was engaging them with in the first letter. And, and even before that, they're... Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy, their time with them physically. And uh, so 2 Thessalonians is kind of wrapping this up before Paul has to move on uh, with the rest of his divine appointments and ministry endeavors. And you will notice throughout 1 and 2 Thessalonians, there is a, a primacy placed on prayer. There is a way of life that Paul engages here in this mission work and ministry that requires, in fact, depends on the prayers of the saints. And uh, if it sounds like that we mentioned to you a lot about prayer and praying and meeting to pray, that is on purpose because we depend on God and we commune with Him through prayer. We respond to Him in prayer after hearing from Him and His Word. We respond to Him in prayer after seeing our needs. We respond to Him in prayer after meditating upon who He is and what He's done. And so that is a brief description of why it is we would pray. And Paul not only prays, <clears throat> but asks for prayer, because it is by the Lord's help and will that Paul carries out what he carries out. Paul is no... <clears throat> proud man. Paul is completely aware of his abilities. He's completely aware of his gifts and his strength. He's completely aware of his knowledge. He's completely aware of his pedigree. He's completely aware of what he has to boast of in the Lord. But he's aware of that very fact, that it is in the Lord. So that, as he tells us, he, he assumes to know nothing among us except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He tells us in Galatians that even though he works harder than the rest of the other apostles, it is not him but Christ through him. He knows that if he is to do anything of any significance to the glory of God and to the good of his people, that it must be God's power and presence that does it. In fact, it must be God's word that does it. Because if Paul is to speak on behalf of himself and his own knowledge, then he has nothing of God to tell them. But if God speaks, if God proclaims, if God has a word 
and structures it in sentences with verbs and adjectives and nouns that we can understand. If God himself speaks to us, then we hear, we receive life. And so Paul is going to first engage the brothers to pray for him in that light. But first I want to look at uh, the primacy of prayer, especially in these letters. Um, kind of take a little reflection back through how we see Paul engaging in prayer and asking them to engage in prayer. Um, 1 Thessalonians 1-2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he instructs them to pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.25, he begins to end that letter with brothers, pray for us. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we ought always to what? Give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. 2 Thessalonians 1.11, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Not only that, but when we read these letters that Paul wrote in prison, what do we see, especially if you look at Acts and the narrative of, of Paul's ministry, what do we see happening? We see Paul praying through the night, always engaged always dependent on God the Father to do what only God can do. This is Paul's life blood. Okay? So we engage verse 1 of chapter 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Now, here's something interesting, or here's something encouraging for us. Notice who he's engaging in this, right? All the brothers. He's encompassing the brothers and the sisters in his need for prayer from them for what he's called to do. That means the new brothers, the seasoned brothers, the young brothers, the old brothers, everyone can aid Paul and aid the ministry of the word by praying. So immediately, upon your salvation in Christ, upon the grace of God making you a new creation, you can aid the ministry by prayer. It doesn't require those of you who have been praying for 40 years. It doesn't require those of you who think you know how to pray. It doesn't require those of you who have made a habit of praying every day, multiple times a day. It requires everybody. <clears throat> Everybody's engaged in praying for the ministry of the word. What's he praying for, asking to pray for? That the word of the Lord may speed ahead, may be honored, may make progress and develop. Notice also in the New Testament when we hear about the word of the Lord, it is mainly in relation or associated to the gospel. If you read that phrase in the Old Testament, it's mainly related to the revelation or the, the prophecy that God is giving currently or in times to come to his prophets 
uh, in the Old Testament. But when you read that phrase in the New Testament, that's associated with the gospel specifically. So he's asking that they pray that the gospel specifically, or what God has said, what God has stated, his truth, progress and develop. This happens in Acts. Acts 6-7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 12-24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 13-49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Acts 19-20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So what does Paul want? What should we want in prayer? We should want the word of God to make progress and develop. Because why? What does that mean? That means disciples get made. That means people get saved. That means his church gets built. That's what happens when the word of the Lord develops, grows. People get healed. And I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about spiritually. People move um, out of anxiety into faith and trust in the Lord. People um, move out of dependence on self and move into dependence on the Lord. People grow in faith as the word of the Lord develops because they have seen and know that, that God does only things God can do. And when the, the word of the Lord goes forth, the church is established. The church is grown. It prevails. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And it's all built on what? The word of the Lord. It's what Jesus tells Peter and the rest of the disciples in Matthew. He says, the foundation upon which I'm going to build this church, the rock, is not Peter, but the profession that Peter makes that Jesus is the Christ to the glory of God the Father. And that comes from the word of the Lord. Specifically, it comes from the word of the Lord being made manifest. And as that manifest incarnate word of the Lord goes to be at the right hand of God, his word remains because he remains with us by his spirit. And there you see the Trinity engaged in in promoting and developing and progressing the word of God. You know, I was reading about um, angels and demons and spiritual warfare and stuff this week. And you quickly realize, right, as a believer, um, as you watch Jesus in the Gospels engage uh, possessed people and demons and things like that, you realize that they are terrified at the truth of God in person and in word. Terrified. Because that word pronounces judgment on them and freedom for God's people to reign over them. So therefore, as people that are born by the word, as it's made progress and developed, you should not be afraid of the spiritual realm which which tries to throw you off track or come against you. The word of the Lord prevails. Now, that doesn't mean, like Acts 19, that you can just take the word of the Lord and and, and do uh, amazing, awesome things for your own glory. But it does mean that the word of the Lord is the power not only to cause people to be born again,
but cause people to grow in Christ-likeness and also to conquer evil. Amen. You can conquer that in your own life by the word of the Lord, by believing his truth, by going forth in that. And you can watch in Revelation as Jesus conquers those forces which are gathered against him and his people by what? The word that comes out of his mouth. He puts them to nothing. In fact, we've even read earlier that by the breath of his mouth, he'll bring them to nothing. That's chapter 2, verse 8. So Paul's asking them, inviting them. I'm asking you and inviting you specifically here that you would pray that the word of the Lord would speed ahead and be honored. You know, uh, I have to mention Spurgeon again, right? That's the thing to do. Um, Spurgeon had these boiler room prayers. When he was preaching to four or 5,000 people on a Sunday morning, he had 80 to 100 people in the boiler room praying nonstop, without ceasing, that everybody gathered to hear the word of the Lord would hear it, would respond to it would repent and believe, would, would set down or conquer that sin, <clears throat> would grow in faith and trust of God because of what? The word. He instructed them, instructed them mainly to pray that he would be out of the way and the word would go forward. But that's what people would hear. So Paul's asking them that he would pray for us, for Paul, for Sylvanus, for Timothy, that as they do the word work, that the word would go ahead, make progress, and that the word would be honored, would be held in glory or have glory bestowed upon it. He asked them at the end of Ephesians in verse 19 of chapter 6, also for me, as he's asking for prayer, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to what? Proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Now he says this, in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, as happened among you. In other words, he's again reminding the Thessalonians that they received the word of God for what it was. We saw that in the first letter. That they didn't, they didn't dismiss it. They didn't hear it and say, oh, another religious talk, or oh, these crazy people who are following this Nazarene. They received it as the word of the Lord. That they were hearing directly from God himself. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, <clears throat> but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And then in chapter 2, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. What does that work in you believers? Listen, I want people to walk away from here and this hour and this exercise or any time that we engage in the word in Sunday school or these Bible studies we have throughout the week. I want them to leave from here more fascinated with the fact that God speaks than whatever I can do or whatever we can do as teachers, as speakers. I want them to encounter something that God said to them 
not what I said to them. I don't have much to tell you. That's why I only tell you what's here in the Word. There's a lot to tell you there. So, you, you, you can debate and argue with people constantly um, about receiving this Word and how it is the Word of God and how we know that and how throughout history it's proven to be so and how correct it is. You can argue to your blue in the face about the legitimacy of this word. But unless God causes the scales to fall from the eyes, unless God speaks to them himself in the grace and mercy of his word coming to them, they're going to read it as just another book. Spiritual things are discerned spiritually. They need to have uh, eyes and ears of their hearts open to this, to receive it. That is why Paul is asking them to pray for this. Because Paul can't do it. The Thessalonians can't do it. So he's asking that they beseech the Father to make his word do these things. <clears throat> and that it wouldn't return void to them. So he's asking for that. It happened to them. Don't forget that, guys. So if it happened to you, it could probably happen to some more people. So let's pray for that. And then in verse 2, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. <clears throat> We've talked about before that the priority, especially in chapter 1, the priority of Paul's prayers and his asking for prayers is not necessarily that there wouldn't be any persecution for them. But we also made sure to mention that, listen, it's not wrong to pray against the persecution that is surely to come against God and his people and his word. He does so here. Why? Because he wants um, that word to be unhindered as it goes. He knows, especially in their midst and wherever he's going to go, that wicked and evil men, which would be all men outside of the saving grace of Jesus Christ, uh, are wicked and evil, and therefore they have the possibility of hostility against the word. Every man in their improper and unrighteous natural state uh, is, is prone, is destined to speak against the word of God as truth. So the possibility of hostility is always present. And in fact, hindered Paul, as allowed by God, from him not being able to be with the Thessalonians again. <clears throat> Those Jews were stirred up by his speaking in, Thess in Thessalonica that they even followed him to Berea to persecute him. For what? The word. So he's asking, hey, uh, pray for our delivery as well. Because Paul knows, as he communicates in the letter to the Philippians, <clears throat> that if I'm here in the world with you under the call of God in my life to do what he's called me to do, that means fruitful labor. And in order for fruitful labor to happen, there has to be some sort of freedom to proclaim the gospel, even in prison. In other words, his mouth still has to move. His voice box still has to work. There has to be some allowance for him to speak, even if he's in chains. 
So the delivery he's talking about from wicked and evil men is not just that he would never encounter them. It's that even despite that, the word could go forward. And he <clears throat> mentions that not all have faith. Obviously. Not everybody responds to the gospel. Not everybody's saved or will be saved. Not everybody is even friendly to the proclamation or the existence of the gospel. So you have to remember where we're at. In other words, another way to say it is we're behind enemy lines. We are aliens here, foreigners. We belong to a different kingdom, a kingdom that's coming. In fact, a kingdom that has already come. A kingdom that we look forward to, a, a city whose builder and architect is God himself and this world is passing away, but we're here for a time. We're ambassadors of Christ as we're in <coughs> this foreign land to proclaim this word, which will set captives in this land free, which will make them citizens of another kingdom, which will make them heirs of that kingdom, sons of God. He's asking for that. And then he shifts gears here in verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. This is Paul's pastoral care and comfort for his people. And he makes sure that they understand and are reminded that the Lord is steadfast in his uh, affections and his care. He does not break, he cannot break his covenant promises. Notice that he says that second uh, sentence in verse 3, he will. He speaks with utter surety about God. We had a meditation last week about the fact that God himself, God himself specifically intimately deals with each one of his children. And we can't forget that. We can't disregard that. But the comfort is that God himself deals with us, surely deals with us. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Did you hear that? Him who is able to keep you. If we're sure about anything, we need to be sure about who God is and what God does. You know, I heard on the radio this morning, I think, or I don't know when it was, but they were talking about the faith of certain people, and they described that faith as being utterly... Um, untrusting of self and completely trusting of God. In other words, the Bible tells us that our hearts are wicked and deceitful by nature, and we're still working that out and battling that in this life until we get to glory. And so to be a person of faith is to not be so trusting of, of yourself, but to be utterly trusting of God who perfectly speaks truth at all times, 
about himself and about us, who perfectly directs us in his goodwill at all times, who has perfect and good desires at all times, who is perfect, and we're not. And so it is the world's mantra that we need to be self-assured and self-confident. And it's our mantra that we need to be God-assured and God-confident. I don't trust myself. I would recommend that you probably don't trust me either. But I would recommend that you trust God wholly. That's why... Uh, if we're going to have a Berean-type faith about the Word, that you take the things that I say or explain to you about the Word and take them to the Word and see if that's true. He makes sure to mention that as God is faithful, He will surely establish and guard them. To guard means to keep watch over, protect. And notice the juxtaposition here. If you think back to the Garden of Eden, Adam failed in this, right? He was supposed to keep the garden and watch over it and protect it. And he had the word of the Lord to do so. And what did Adam do? He didn't do it. He didn't do it. So what came in? Harm, evil, distortion of God's word, decay. But God... Perfectly, He will do this. God will do this. Adam won't. God will. He's going to keep watch over us, guard us against the evil one. Against the evil one or against evil, some of your translations may say. Uh, that can mean the schemes of the evil one. Uh, specifically here in this letter, <clears throat> what he's asking uh, them to, what he, what he knows that God's going to guard them against is the temptation to abandon their faith. The temptation to abandon their faith in the midst of persecution for said faith. What do, you, what do you think Satan would love more than anything? He loves to lead people astray. That's how he began his interactions with human beings. That's how he continues his interaction with human beings. Is trying to get us to abandon the faith. That's why the book of Job is so important. What is Job for? Job is, is, a, is a test of what it means when God guards and protects us against the schemes of the evil one, which he puts him before Satan because he knows Satan wants to see people led astray and abandon their faith. What's God know? He's going to guard his people. So as this wolf tries to come in to the fold and demolish the flock, uh, God does not let that happen. Maybe in judgment to a flock that is not following the shepherd, not paying attention to the shepherd, and they're uh, all sorts of ornery type of sheep, God may bring the wolf in for judgment. But we know Surely, as these Thessalonians had received the word of God as what it is, surely, if we have received the word of God for what it is, he will guard us. What does Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Matthew 6, 13. Lead us not into temptation, but what? Deliver us 
from the evil one. John 17, 15, Jesus prays again, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, Paul asked that they would pray that his ministry of the word would go forward and that evil and wicked men would not be able to um, hinder that. But for them, he reassures them that the Lord will keep them from the evil one. The temptation to abandon their faith, the temptation to shrink back from the pressure put on them, he reassures them, if you're God's people, he will keep you from the evil one. Jesus himself is asking for this. And if Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, according to Romans 8, making intercession for the saints, then we know this is part of it. That you will be kept from that. If you ever get worried and think about persecution or future persecution, if it may come, and if you think your faith isn't strong enough to um, withstand that, well, I would, I would have you look outside of yourself to the good shepherd who is guarding you. Surely, if these weak men in Scripture abandoned Christ at the cross, but then later died for him by the power of the Spirit, then that same Spirit that worked that faith in them and guarded them from abandoning their faith in, that, in those crucial hours will do so with you. It's the same Spirit as the apostles. You have the same spirit of God. So notice in verse 3 that uh, establishing is something that God does internally, right? He, he, so, he, he cements your faith, period. Like Martin Luther, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. That's it. I ain't going anywhere else. That's where I am. And to guard, well, we've just discussed that. It may be even external in nature. To keep us from maybe what the physical world can do to our faith. Look at verse 4. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. His confidence is in the Lord. In other words, he's sure about what the Lord is doing with them. And that the Lord is teaching them, guarding them, establishing them in the faith so that they're, they're modeling it right now. They're following it. They're obeying it. And that gives uh, Paul confidence because he knows that if the Lord started or began a good work in them, he will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. So, he has faith that they will do the things that he's commanded them. Okay? This is what God's people naturally do. This is what it naturally looks like. Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Confident in what the Lord will do. Verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Let's model this with a couple patriarchs in the faith. 
David and his son Solomon. Let's start with David. David says this in 1 Chronicles 29. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. And the uprightness of my heart I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. David himself knows that unless the Lord directs the heart, it doesn't go where it needs to go. David modeled such a faith, especially in the Psalms, of dependence upon God that we are convinced that he knew the gospel before Jesus was made incarnate. That he knew who God was more intimately than anybody else at that period of time. And he was king. That's a good thing for your king to know, isn't it? And he knows this, that God will direct hearts. God has to direct hearts. And the purposes and thoughts of those hearts. And then his son Solomon, 1 Kings 8, The Lord God, our God, be with us. As he was with our fathers, may he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Solomon knows the same thing. The Lord has to direct and incline our hearts to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, or it will not happen. So this final word here in verse 5 is asking, it's uttering a sort of benediction and blessing that the Lord would do this. The Lord would do this. Psalm 130, verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. If you hope in yourself to make it to the end, full of faith, you're, you're kidding yourself. You're trusting in weak things. But if you trust in God to bring you there, you're trusting in sure things, strong things. And there's hope for that. That's why I feel so sorry for the burdens that are heaped upon all these people uh, tied up in these false religions. They have, a, they have a hopeless existence. They have a bad news, not a good news. <laughs> You're going to hope in yourself to get to heaven? Wow. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Where are, where are the people instructed to look in Hebrews? They're instructed to look to Jesus. Instructed to look to him alone, the founder, listen, and the perfecter of our faith. The founder and the perfecter who upholds the world by his word, who knits all things together in himself, who redeems and sets free a people for his own pleasure and joy, who keeps 
a people till the final day and brings them to glory. Who guarantees a glory as if it's already happened. So we look to him. And we take Paul's example and we pray. We pray that the word would make progress and be established in our lives, in your lives, and in the lives of his people yet to come. And if we're not praying for that, then we're not part of God's will in prayer. We're not about seeing what God wants through prayer. We're just about our temporal needs and joy instead of our eternal needs and joy. So final instruction here as we close this out. Um, as we'll get into next week, don't be idle. Don't be idle in prayer. Don't be idle in investing and in seeing the word of the Lord make progress, especially in your own life, grow in Christ-likeness. Take heart because God loves you, therefore do not give up. We've established that these past two Sundays. The word of the Lord will make progress. He will establish you. He will direct your hearts. He will complete the work that he began in you. He will do it. And because of that surety, Jesus endured the shame of the cross. What do you have to endure to get there? Because we will be glorified provided we suffer with him. So take heart in his word. Pray for his word, and we'll get there. Respond to the Lord now in prayer, and then we'll stand and sing together.